In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Many of you have been introduced to the work of a man named Ray Stedman. Ray has gone on to be with the Lord, but he was a prolific Bible teacher. And in his 40 years at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, Ray left behind a treasure trove of resources for those who want to learn how to hear the voice of God speaking through his word. And when Ray taught on this particular passage we heard a moment ago, read by Suzanne um, from 1 Corinthians 15, he began by relaying his experience as a missionary going behind the Iron Curtain back in the days when the USSR was still a going concern. And he invites the reader to use their imagination to imagine what life would have been like as a Christian living behind the Iron Curtain. Imagine what it would have been like to live under the thumb of an oppressive government which takes hold of its people like some great menacing bully and demands that they give up their faith in God. Imagine that your children are being indoctrinated in a school whose teachers are also committed to ridding the land of its belief in God. As a Christian living behind the Iron Curtain, You may well have been faced with the prospect of being turned in by your own children for worshiping Jesus and encouraging others to do the same. And in that kind of environment, you might well begin to wonder, is it really all true? Is there really a God? Did his son Jesus really die and and was resurrected for the sins of the world? Is it really true? Because everyone else around me doesn't seem to think so. And the communist government is dead set against ridding the world of that faith. I'm putting myself and my family at great danger by holding on to this faith. Is it really true? Well, thank God we don't live under that kind of oppressive government, but I would submit that while we may not be facing a bully who demands that we give up our faith, we modern-day Westerners are more like a people who are, brace yourselves, swimming in a pool full of leeches. Now, I know that's an unsettling image, and I apologize for that, but it's a picture of the effect that our environment can have on our faith. In most cases, we, we don't face a full frontal assault to our faith as Christians do in communist China, for example, but there is nevertheless a slow and effective drain on the lifeblood of our faith, which is perhaps more insidious and effective because it happens slowly and quietly without our even noticing it. Some of you grew up in large cities. But many of us find ourselves in a much more cosmopolitan setting than the one we grew up in and the one we knew as children. And this means that we are rubbing shoulders with persons who hold all sorts of different beliefs. And in that kind of environment, we can begin to wonder, either consciously or subconsciously, is all this stuff about Jesus really true? For example, let's suppose you have a neighbor or a friend who is a Muslim. 
Someone who made in God's image is a person whom you are called by God to love. But whose holy book, the Quran, emphatically states this about Jesus. Listen. They killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. Now, when your neighbor or friend's holy book says this about Jesus, whereas your holy book emphatically claims that he died and that on the third day he was raised from the dead, well, this creates kind of an awkward situation. Because after all, either Jesus died or he didn't die. Either he was resurrected or he wasn't resurrected. Or to put a finer point on it, Either the Quran is right or the Bible is right, but they can't both be right. This is the tension that is part of living in a cosmopolitan setting. And this tension can have the effect of draining out the lifeblood of our confidence in the lordship of Jesus and his promise of life abundant. You add to this our culture's unrelenting commitment to press us into the mold of conformity in which everyone is expected to affirm that no religious system is more right or better than any other. If you want to go along and get along in a culture with that kind of a commitment, that you're going to have to back away from what the Bible says is true about Jesus and his resurrection. There's just no getting around it. So you see, both our cosmopolitan setting where we're surrounded by people who hold different beliefs than us, as well as our culture, which is hell-bent on its commitment that all religions are either equally true or equally untrue, both of these have the effect of leeching out our confidence in Jesus and his resurrection, leaving us to wonder, is it really all true? Well, it's precisely this kind of situation that the recipients of Paul's letter to the Corinthians were facing. They lived in a culture where belief in the resurrection was at best laughable and at worst a threat to the pagan way of life. You might say, now why in the world would the resurrection be a threat to the pagan way of life? Well, you see, in contrast to the pagan world, which considered the body to be nothing more than a shell for the soul that you can do with what you want, In contrast to that, if the resurrection is true, if God is going to resurrect us with physical bodies, then it means that the body matters to God. It means that it matters what I do to and with my body. And that kind of belief does not mix well with the pagan commitment to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That is, if the resurrection is true, if the body matters to God, then I'm not free to pursue every passion and yearning of my body. And that's why the pagan world began to realize all this talk about resurrection. It was a threat to their way of life. So they began to push back against the Christians. And this pressure, in turn, caused the members of the Corinthian church to begin to second-guess their belief in the resurrection. It became a very difficult belief to hold on to. When I read about the pressures that the Corinthian church faced, 
I think to myself, boy, this is what every Christian student must face uh, every day. Pressure um, from their fellow students who are non-believers to back away from their belief in the resurrection. After all, if you want to fit in as a young person in this world, the last thing you want to suggest is that we're not free to do whatever we want with our bodies. So you see, belief in the resurrection is no less threatening to non-believers today than it was back in ancient Corinth. Well, to get back to their situation, back in Corinth, the Corinthian church, they weren't backing away from their belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They didn't doubt that. What they were beginning to back away from was God's promise that we will be raised from the dead and that we will receive new bodies. And this is why Paul writes in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, Paul here is clearly frustrated and concerned, and it's because he cares about these people. He knows these people. When Paul realized that they were beginning to back away from the, one of the great promises of God, he understood that they were likewise beginning to back away from a source of great hope and power that God wanted to give them. So what Paul is trying to help them see is that to back away from the resurrection is to rob yourself of some of the gifts that God wants to give you. He lays all of this out in verse 13 and following. If there is no resurrection of the dead, well, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith, your faith is in vain. Paul then follows this whole chain of consequences that will result from abandoning belief in the resurrection all the way down to that wonderful summary in verse 19, a summary that will be familiar uh, to some of us where he writes this. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if there's no resurrection, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We're pitiful. If the resurrection is not true, then life is nothing more than tap dancing on the deck of the Titanic. As you all well know, art uh, reflects culture. Sometimes artists realize things about ourselves that, that we don't realize, and, and it's reflected in their art. And sometimes it's only by looking back that we realize, oh, the, the artist saw something about us that we, we didn't see in ourselves. And while some of you might ob object to the suggestion that a science fiction movie could be considered as art, if you'll just grant me that for a moment, um, I'd like to point out, I love science fiction movies, but I find that there are fewer and fewer movies that I'm interested in watching because the science fiction movies of today, so many of them are dystopian and hopeless. And yet the writers and creators of this movie, they are communicating back to us the very same truth that Paul is conveying right here. If there is no resurrection, if this is all that there is, then life is nothing more than window dressing in the Hunger Games. The art of our day is crying out, if we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. 
So what does God actually promise when it comes to death and resurrection? One of the great joys of serving on the clergy team here at St. Philip's is I get to teach our foundations class twice a year. As the name implies, the class simply covers our foundational beliefs that we hold dear as Christians. And having taught this class many times, I've begun to notice a pattern. Uh, Those of you who are classroom teachers, you'll know that anytime you teach a class, it doesn't matter what the topic is, there are going to be some students in the class who are naturally interested and excited about what you are teaching. But there will also be persons in the class who uh, just struggle to, they just, they just can't hang on, and, and, and they're not engaged, and it's normal, it happens in every class, it's not their fault. But what I've begun to notice is that those who have been struggling to stay awake for the first few weeks, you know, they're, kind of, they're doing the best they can, trying to stay awake, and you know, I'm trying to keep their attention. Um, what I've begun to notice is that as soon as we get to the class that talks about that one line in the Apostles' Creed, where we say that Jesus descended into hell, all of a sudden, those persons who up to that point have been, you know, kind of nodding off, they're the ones, when we get to that little phrase, do you need to use the restroom? Do you need to be excused? They say, no, I got a question, I got a question. And the class comes to life with questions about life after death, the resurrection. What does God promise us? So what does God's word actually reveal to us? Well, we learn two things about life after death. First, we learn that when we die, our body is laid in the ground, but that our spirit goes to be in the presence of God. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Now, we don't become angels. Angels are some other kind of spiritual creature. There's no talk of us getting wings in the Bible. We won't have bodies at this point. But we are in the presence of God and it is described as a paradise. Wow. But friends, this paradise is not our final destination. The second thing that God's word explains to us is that at the appointed time, a time that is known only to the Father in heaven, Jesus will return to judge the quick and the dead. Now, quick is just an old-fashioned term meaning those who are alive. So if Jesus were to return right now, you all would be the quick. You're living. You have a quickening of your breath. So God's word teaches that Jesus will come back to judge those who are living at the moment of his return, the quick, and he will also judge those who have died. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Or those who live before the time of Jesus who have placed their faith in God and have loved God. They will be resurrected with a new resurrection body. To live out eternity in a new creation that has likewise been resurrected. They're going to be animals. They're going to be trees. I suppose they're also going to be microbes. There will be planets. There'll be stuff to do. Every limitation of this body will be taken away. Every ailment of this body will be healed. 
And we will be able to experience every physical joy that this body can experience, such that the joy and euphoria that you have experienced in this life, it won't hold a candle to the physical fulfillment that you will experience with your resurrected body. Furthermore, when we read about Jesus uh, after he was raised from the dead and and we read the accounts of those who encountered Jesus, we learn that Jesus' resurrection body was able to do things that his pre-resurrection body was not able to do. He was able to pass through doors. He was able to appear and to disappear. The point being, your resurrection body is going to be able to do things that your current body cannot do. I, for one, am counting on being able to strike the Superman pose and get to Japan in about 10 minutes. I had a parishioner in a former parish. He said, oh, I'm not, I'm not messing around with the planet Earth. With my resurrection body, I'm going to be doing some intergalactic exploring. Now, I'm having a little bit of fun, of course. But the point is that our ultimate destination after death will be to live out eternity in the new creation with new resurrected bodies. It's this promise that Paul is urging the people of Corinth not to abandon. Because, friends, this promise of God, it can bring us great hope and strength when we face the limitations of this pre-resurrection life. For example, I've known many a person who has developed late in life a celiac disease. And what they've said to me is, boy, you know, the, the one thing I miss is freshly baked French bread. You can understand that. Well, the promise of the resurrection is that those of you who who are no longer able to eat freshly baked French bread, you will be able to in the resurrection. It'll be far better than anything you tasted here on earth. I also think about those of us who have been called to live the single life. God calls some of us to live the married life, and he calls some of us to live the single life. Both of these stations of life, the single life and the married life, are upheld and exalted in God's word. After all, Paul, who wrote this letter, was himself single. He lived the single life. And without putting too fine a point on it, I want to point out that the bodily joys that are part of the married life, they will not be withheld from anyone after the resurrection. And knowing this can be a source of great strength and encouragement in this life. It means that nobody is going to be missing out on anything in the long term. Nobody has to feel like they got the, the short end of the deal. So whenever we are denied a bodily joy in this life, for whatever reason, we can draw strength from God's promise that the withholding of that bodily joy is only temporary. This is why Paul after listing all of those consequences of abandoning our faith in the resurrection, brings us back to the historical fact that Jesus died and that everyone close to him reported that they saw him raised again in bodily form. As he says here in verse 20, he said, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. As that great pastor and writer Eugene Peterson translated this verse, he said, Jesus is the first of many who are going to walk out of the cemetery. 
Friends, Christ has been raised. And more than this, he's just the first. You are going to be raised as well. You are going to walk out of the cemetery as well. Friends, if you will hold fast to your hope in the resurrection, if you allow the Holy Spirit to fill the imagination of your heart with all that God promises us for the life to come, if you will ask the Holy Spirit to renew your faith as you go out into the unbelieving world, then my friends, great hope and strength can be yours. And more than this, God can use you to share this great hope and strength with others. May God grant you the grace to proclaim with joy. Christ has been raised from the dead and hallelujah, one day so will I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise to us through your word that death is not the end. We thank you for our future hope in the resurrection. We thank you that when we face death, we do not have to face it with fear, but yes, even with joyful anticipation. We ask, Lord God, that you would renew your Holy Spirit within us to give us eyes to see what you have promised and to renew our strength as we go out into this unbelieving world that we might not only hold fast to our faith, but that we might share it with others, that this hope and strength might be theirs. For we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Amen.